We're continuing a series right now. It's called Building Blocks. And the idea of the Building Blocks series, like building blocks you might play with as a kid, are what are the things I do, add up together, that grow my faith? So we've talked about prayer, being in the Word of God, being a part of the body of Christ, giving, worshiping. And this morning we're talking about turning. The word today is turn. And the reason I chose that word is it's a one-syllable version of a two-syllable biblical word. And for the sake of my sermon series, I'm trying to make them all one syllable, which is just kind of a silly thing that gets in a preacher's mind. Okay. Uh, but the two-syllable word that turn defines, anybody know the word? Repent. Repent is the Bible word. And so repentance is a turning. That's what the word literally means. And in the scriptures, what it means is you are turning from sin. You're you're heading in the different direction from your sin. Okay, so it's really clear when you read the New Testament that the earliest Christians were trying to figure sin out because they knew like we sang about and like Chris, one of our shepherds who just led us in communion said, they knew that Jesus did what he did, died on the cross, was resurrected from the grave for our sins that it was done as treatment to forgive us of and free us from our sins, that the blood of Christ, like the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, was applied to our lives. And so they got baptized, and the next day when they sinned, I don't know what they did. They were ugly to somebody they loved. They said a bad word. I don't know what the bad words were back then. They did something, and they couldn't make sense of that. I thought I was done with sin. Was I baptized? Did my... So the question they ask is, did my baptism not take was something broken? Okay. Am I not saved? And Paul and the other New Testament writers say, no, 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 no. Okay. You are saved once and for all by the blood of Jesus. And then they say, oh, that's good. So my sin doesn't matter anymore. It's no big deal, right? I don't have to worry about it. And to that, the New Testament writers say, no, no, no. It's a very big deal. Okay. So let's, I want to talk with you about our relationship to sin once we belong to Jesus Christ, okay? That's what I'm gonna try to make sense of today. So let's start by defining terms. Let's start with sin. What is sin? That's a very churchy word. It's not a word you're likely to use at the business place or in your workplace. Somebody may say like, well, you know, I'm struggling with this or that, but they're probably not gonna use the word sin. That's a Bible word. What is sin? Well, if you go back to the earliest story in scripture, it's the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve live with God in this perfect union in the garden, but then they choose their own selfish ambition and desires over God's design and intention for them. At that moment, sin enters the story, and it looks something like this. What sin is, is choosing yourself over God, okay? Myself over God. That I know best, what I want is what I need, not what he wants or needs for me. Okay, so this is the fundamental flaw in the human system, our tendency to choose ourselves over God. That's sin. What happens immediately for Adam and Eve is this sin begins to pull them like a gravitational force towards this force they would not have known otherwise. What's that force? Death. Sin begins to lead them towards something they didn't even know about, but now their whole life is catapulting towards death. In fact, death is working its way back into their lives while they're alive. Their family, their, their son kills his other son. They're kicked out of the garden. Their whole life begins to unravel and ultimately they die. 
And so the biblical story is it is sin that is pulling you towards death like a gravitational force. So what does God do about this? God sets about reorienting you and me, turning us from selfish, self-centered people, ignoring God, turning us back towards him where he is greater in our lives, where he is the first thing in our lives. It's God over self. And the way he does that at first is through a law, which includes things like the blood sacrifice that Chris talked about a moment ago, circumcision, all of these things to deal with our sin and keep us as God's people. But ultimately what God sees as necessary is he's going to have to satisfy that law once and for all because you and I can't keep it perfectly. So he sends his son to die for our sins, satisfy the law. And what happens then for those of us who have been turned from self to God is now we have a job. Whereas before sin was pulling us towards death, now you and I bring death to sin. We set about killing sin. That's what we mean by turning from sin. Okay. Let me show you this. This is in Romans 8. So if you've got your Bible and you want to go there, go to Romans 8, starting in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It's going to be on the screen. While you're turning there, let me set this up with a, with a story, an analogy. Imagine there was this young guy, and he's grown up, he's lived kind of a hard scrabble life, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and he's made all kinds of mistakes in his life, all kinds of run-ins with the law. He's just always in trouble. But then one day he meets a girl. And he falls madly in love with this girl. Does this sound like a movie to anybody? Like, it's like every movie, okay? And he falls madly in love with this girl. And so he goes to the girl's mother and father. And he says, hey, listen, I want to marry your daughter. And they say, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. We are so excited for you to be with our daughter. We have been looking forward to you joining our family. We're just so excited about this. We can't even tell you how great this is. Here's the one thing. You're going to have to work for the family business. Okay? And he's like, well, I don't want to do that. I've got my own dreams and my own ambitions, my own things I want to do. And so he says to the girl, he says, let's run away and be happy. We'll be poor, but we'll be happy. Okay? And being poor and happy, that's fine. Okay? But Hollywood conditions us to think that mom and dad are probably tyrants, aren't they? And they want to control this their daughter and this man, this young man, they want to control their lives. They want to have them under their thumb. They want to take away all their fun. They want to crush their young love. But what if that's not true? What if mom and dad are perfectly good? And what if they just actually know what would be best for this young man and their daughter? And what if they just knew that there's something inside of this young man that if it's not kept within certain boundaries, if he doesn't have purpose in his life, ultimately that thing inside of him and that thing inside of her will ruin them. What if he just knows that? And she just knows that as mom and dad. All you mom and dads are like, yes, preach. We do know. Okay, no. Okay, come with me here to Romans 8 and 12, and I think that story will make a little bit more sense, where the parent of the family actually knows best, and it's working for the family. Look at this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, family language, right? You're in the family. We have an obligation or a job to do. What is it? It's not to the flesh. That's another word for sin, the selfish, sinful self, the flesh. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, 
you will what? Die. Sin is leading you towards death. But if by the Spirit, not by yourself, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, remember, bringing death to sin, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, and the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Okay, you see the family language here? He's saying when you crossed over from unbelief into belief in Jesus Christ, when your faith met his grace, you became part of the family. But in the family, we have a job to do. In the family, we have an obligation. Now, it's not as a slave, it's as a son, he says. Now, this, I know this is African-American History Month, so so many of you like me are thinking about the history of this country, thinking about things like slavery and that terrible, tragic mark on our history and lives. One of the things that that tragedy has done is it has made it hard for us even today to read Scripture and fully appreciate what it's saying. Because often in Scripture, to be a slave is a good thing, and we can't even conceive of that. But here, it's actually pretty helpful because he's comparing what it would be like for a slave to have a job to do with an overbearing master threatening punishment versus what it is like for a son to have a job to do who is part of the family and stands to receive the inheritance as part of a child of this family. Does that make sense to you? Do you see the difference there? Okay, saying you're not a slave. You don't have this tyrant bearing down on you, trying to steal all your fun or over top of you, threatening you if you don't perform well. You have a father who loves you. And as part of the family he brought you into, you have a job. What's the job? Okay, did you see what the job is? Look again, to put to death by the spirit, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Your job as part of the family of God is to bring death to sin. Okay, to put sin to death. That's your obligation. Okay. So I've been trying to think of in this series how to make things that are admittedly challenging as simple as I can. And so I got this little whiteboard in my office and I started drawing this out. And it looked terrible. So Russ Terman said, I think I can do that better. <laughs> and so what you're going to see here is with Russ's help. I'm so grateful for Russ. But let's, I want you to understand the gospel story. All right. So let's throw this up on the screen. Let's throw up this next piece of art here. It'll have death in the middle. Let's go to the next one. Here it comes. Right there. All right. So for those on the left side, this would be the non-believer, the person who has not yet given their lives to Jesus in baptism what you and I all were at some point, okay? On this side of the line, sin is the gravitational force of death, pulling all things in our lives towards their unraveling, okay? And so death reaches its tentacles back into our lives. It's ruining everything. It's ruining our relationships, um, our efforts. Everything that we try to do is kind of coming apart because all of life is just catapulting towards death. And so on this side of the line, very good people, very good people put in a lot of effort trying to counteract the effects of sin in their life. So an example of this would be like, um, I work out so that I can keep eating chocolate. Does anybody else do this? You like justify your dessert that day because you worked out. You're not trying to eliminate your desire for chocolate. You're not trying to stop eating chocolate. 
you're trying to counteract the effect on your body of eating all that chocolate. So you work out, do you understand? Okay, so on this side, my effort is going against the pull of sin towards death. Another example of this would be the massive um, self-help book industry. Okay, you don't want to deal actually with your procrastination. You don't actually want to deal with your busyness or your anger. You just want to develop better habits, okay, to fight against them. All right, so you're working against the effect of sin in your life, pulling you towards death. This is the biblical story from Adam and Eve. So what happens? Oh, let me say this. On this side, because sin is so strong, it is always a one step forward, two steps back situation. I make a little progress and sin keeps pulling me towards death on that side. This is the gospel. You ready? Jesus comes to us. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus comes from beyond death. That's why this is so important. Crosses back through death through his cross, resurrection, and offers to take you and I by the hand. And what he says is jarring and surprising. He actually says, stop fighting for a second and just let yourself die. That's the language or image of baptism. You're gonna die to yourself. Actually, stop fighting for a second and just come with me and let me pull you through a death to yourself, your selfish, sinful self, I'm going to pull you across death into a life that's really life. Life over here has an asterisk on it because it's not real life. It's not that great. I'm going to pull you along through death, baptism, into a new life. And here's the difference. On this side, you're going to have what? My help. That's the difference. So sin is still there on the other side of the line. In fact, sin is now working in the opposite direction. It's pulling back towards the death you already passed through. And your effort is still going to be required against death. We're going to see that in just a moment. The difference is, and the most important difference, the gospel difference is on this side of the line, on this side of dying to yourself and belonging once and for all to Jesus Christ, you are not alone in your efforts against sin. You have a job as part of the family. You just have the Father's help to do the job. That's the difference, okay? All right, and so what happens though for you and me is we can stop putting in the effort and when we do, our growth in him stalls or reverses. And we start moving back towards the death we already moved through. Does that make sense? Okay, so this leads to the Puritan. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember this quote from John Owen. He was a Puritan, early America. He said this, so be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Isn't that good? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Okay. Um, so repeatedly in Scripture, we are told to make every effort against sin to work hard at killing, turning from the sin in your life. Let me show you just a couple. There's just four of many dozens. Look at this. Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, Jesus says, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and they will not be able to. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness or the absence of sin, 2 Peter 1.5. 
Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. 2 Peter 3.14. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'm not the first to say it. The grace of Jesus is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You've not earned what he has done for you, but that does not mean he does not demand, does not give you an obligation to put forth effort in abandoning and killing your sin. So how do I do that? Whew, man, how do I do that? That's hard, right? That's hard. So let me share with you things I'm learning as it comes to my own battle with sin, things I'm learning as it comes from being a minister who's helping others in their battle with sin, and things I'm learning from God's Word. We're going to end real practical. I'm going to give you practical steps for killing sin in your life with the help of the Spirit. First step, ask to see your sin. First step, ask to see your sin. And by that, I don't mean like ask somebody, although that can help, and I'll say something about that in a second. Pray to the Lord daily to show you the sin you are not even aware of. Um, This is in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Look at this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any, any offensive way in me. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know what's wrong with you, Pharisees? You are hopeless self-justifiers, he calls them, self-justifiers. What he means by that is that we have a hard time seeing what's actually wrong with us. What we often do is we compare ourselves to others. We say, well, I'm not as bad a mom as she is. And I've got some things that aren't going so good for me, but look at that dude, he's the worst. Right? And what we do is we justify ourselves to convince ourselves we're not actually that, that sinful And Jesus says, this is the problem because I can't treat what you won't identify. Um, You want to know something? You want to know how sometimes Jesus answers this prayer that he would show us our sin? Sometimes it's through our spouses. Sometimes it's through our friends. Maybe it's through our parents. How many of you, somebody you love has come to you and been like, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. And all of a sudden these walls go up immediately all around you. You're like, you're not going to talk to me about anything. The other night, we had, it had been a long weekend. I, I just felt like I had been irritable with the boys and probably with Lindsay some too. So we put him down to bed, and bedtime can be a challenge. You know about that. We come down the stairs, Lindsay and I together, and I'm like, babe, I don't know why I'm so cranky tonight. I'm just kind of ugly to everybody tonight. She just said, mm-hmm. You know, what I wanted her to say was, no, babe, you're good. You're all good. And she just said, mm-hmm. And so then I was like, well, you didn't have a perfect day either. Okay, no, sometimes the people around us are God's way of answering that prayer of showing us our sin. Hey, there's something going on right now that you need to work on. Ask the Lord to see your sin. Number two, don't be alone. Don't be alone. I mean, think about it. From the time you were kids, my kids would never do this, but when you were kids, you probably did things when you were by yourself that you would not do in front of your parents or you would not do around other people. Now, I know there's bad peer pressure, so it's possible that a group of people leads us to do something wrong, but there's also a good peer pressure. So look at this in Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This is why we did this sermon about turning from sin after last week's about joining the church, because a part of being a part of the one another is when I come here and I rub shoulders with other people, their encouragement 
helps me to see my sin for the liar that it is. Okay, it's from the encouragement I get from the body that I see my sin for what it is. So often sin is birthed when you are alone and separated from the body. Don't be alone. Number three, don't have secrets. Don't have secrets, but do keep secrets. Now, if somebody shares something with you that they've entrusted to you, I expect you to keep that secret. Don't be like, well, Eric said I had to tell everybody. Don't say that. All right, keep somebody else's secrets, but for you personally, don't have secrets. You need, one of the things I've learned that one of the most important pieces of beating and defeating sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit is by naming that sin to somebody else. Look with me at this. This is James 3, sorry, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Man, a a friend of mine here at church recently said something, I'll never forget it. He said, our secrets keep us sick. Our secrets keep us sick. One of the things that often comes up when I'm doing premarital counseling with young couples is our cell phones and whether my spouse can look at my phone anytime they want to. And it, it kind of, it's, it's kind of really interesting. A lot of times it'll depend on the age of the people I'm working with, especially if they're older and they've been living on their own for a while. The idea that somebody else would look at their phone, what, you don't trust me? This is mine. They have a passcode on their phone that their spouse doesn't know. My experience is that doesn't lead to a lot of holiness and intimacy in the marriage. That's my experience. How many of us have secrets kept where? On our phones. Is there somebody else in your life who's looking at your phone? Don't have secrets. Don't have secrets. Uh, Number, I don't know. Next number. Go to bed. Go to bed. Um, In scripture, darkness is a metaphor for what happens when we're living in sin. It clouds, it darkens our whole life. And the reason the metaphor works is because sin makes it hard to see what's ahead of us. So darkness is a metaphor in scripture. So look at this. Let me show you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. I think that's a metaphor, but I can't help but look at that and just think how practically instructive that is. How much of our sins or how many of our sins are birthed late at night when we are tired and the lights are out? I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a text message from a man or more often for men here, especially young men here, who have the pornography tracking apps on their phone, I'll get an alert, an email at 1 a.m. of a transgression there. When I call them in the morning, the first thing I said is, what are you doing up at 1 a.m.? Go to bed. Go to bed. You know what the problem is? If you would wake up at 5 a.m., you would go to sleep at 10, okay? And when you wake up at 5, you don't wake up at 5 a.m. and think, man, I'm gonna sin right now. You wake up at 5 a.m. and you're so tired, you're like, I guess I'll read my Bible. Don't have anything else to do. Okay? Go to sleep. Go to bed. So much sin, especially for men, is happening late at night when the lights are out. Husbands and wives, go to bed at the same time. Go to bed at the same time. Next number, pull the sprouts. Pull the sprouts. Jesus uses a lot of farming imagery in scripture, especially around the topic of sin. He says that his word can be choked out in your life by the weeds of sin that grow up around it and choke the life out of it. 
And so John Owen, that same Puritan, had the great line about killing sin. He said, the thing about sin is, if you don't weed it out when it's in its smallest form, it will eventually grow into its biggest form. If you don't weed it out at the beginning. So you got to pull the sprouts. You don't, as Paul says in Ephesians, give the devil a foothold in your life. Don't give him a place to kind of land and grow in your life. Weed it out at the beginning. But then for you, like for me, there are some sins that are much deeper than that. They've been going on forever, and they're hard to shake. One of the things I've learned through the ministry of Freedom Prayer, which is a ministry we have here, is how important it is, and this is the next one, to find the root of your sin. My experience has been that many of our sins are not just because we want to do a bad thing. It's often because of some deep wound or hurt. And so an addiction can be spurred by trauma some injury. Well, the Lord's desire is to heal that, right? And if the Lord would heal that, you may be surprised that the sin that you use to cope with that thing loses its power over your life. You got to go to the root. That's the next thing I'd say. Okay, and then the last one, ask for help. Ask for help. And you can ask others for help. I'm, I'm all for that. But in this case, what I mean is, are you daily asking the Lord by the power of his spirit to help you to beat, to beat, to turn from, to kill sin? In Hebrews 4, it says this. The context of this is in Hebrews 3 and 4. It talks about the danger for Christians of sin drawing us away from what the Lord has promised to us, a rest for our souls. And he says this. He says, let us then, at the end of that great chapter, approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. You know, the good news is, remember, the Lord's coming from the other side of what plagues us and saying, my desire is to draw you towards more life. What I want for you is to give you real, full life. All you got to do is ask for my help. That's it. Ask for my help, and I'll give it. Okay, church, I got more stuff, but we're out of time. So if you were to ask me what Christians do, I would tell you Christians turn from their sin. They make that turn every day. They work at defeating and killing the sin in their life by the gracious power of Jesus Christ for his sake and glory and for your good. Let me pray for you. God, I'm thankful for the people you've gathered here this morning. Would you fill them with your spirit and power? That through your spirit and power, they might overcome the sins in their life, robbing them of life. I pray this, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.